My guest today is Dirk Otto. Dirk leads the marketing department for Boehringer Ingelheim Espania, the Spanish affiliate of Germany's biggest prescription drug company. Having studied marketing and international business in the Netherlands and the United Kingdom, he's been working in the pharmaceutical industry for the past 20 years, mainly in sales and marketing roles, but also in general management, as well as briefly in what's called market access, where he's worked to ensure that health insurances would reimburse specific therapies. He's moved around a lot. His career has taken him to global head offices and local affiliates to emerging markets such as South Africa and Chile, and very mature ones such as his favourite country, Japan, and his home country of Germany. In this episode, I wanted to explore with him what marketing means in a life sciences company, who his customers are, and how he interacts with them. I also wanted to explore some of the big industry trends and how they're starting to change the way in which life sciences, and Bowringer in particular, is having to consider its approach to customer experience, and even how it might need to be organized differently in the future. Dirk is always great to speak to, and through this conversation, you'll get a fascinating insight into the challenges that pharma companies are facing now and in the future and how the role of customer experience management will play an ever-increasing part in their success. I really hope that whatever industry sector you're in, you'll draw some inspiration from this. Anyhow, enough preamble from me. Let's welcome Dirk. Dirk, hi, welcome. Thank you very much indeed for deciding to come on the show and, and agreeing to talk to me today. First of all, I wish I was with you where you live. I know where you live. I've been there. Fantastic. San Cugat in Spain. And I certainly would have decided that were we recording this podcast in normal times, I would have insisted on doing it face to face with you to get the better quality of recording that I know we could have got. But we can make do with uh, with this. And uh, it's great to see you anyway. And I hope you're well. But perhaps before we sort of get into the conversation, you know, as I said in my introduction, you're head of marketing for Boehringer Ingelheim in Spain. And I know that before Boehringer, you work for Bayer and that you've moved around the world a fair bit. So perhaps before we start off, perhaps we could hear a bit about your story in your own words about your career path and how you ended up performing this role in BI in Spain. Sure. Neil, first of all, a total pleasure to be with you today and to talk about this this topic, the rise of the customer. That's something that fascinates both of us. And uh, maybe we'll do a second installment from San Cugat sometime soon, hopefully. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there. It. <laughs> but it's always a pleasure to talk to you, even remotely. Yeah, how did, how did I end up here? Uh, if I look back on the past 20 years, it's been a little bit dizzy almost uh, in different countries and uh, moving between head office and in-country roles in South Africa, where I started, Japan, um, Chile and now in Spain, but the bottom of it, it's still a very classical commercial pharma career. I started out carrying the bag, worked in local marketing after that, started off, um, I started with a colleague building the market access department in South Africa. Then I got sent to Japan, did some post-merger integration work there, uh, then marketing again. The coolest thing probably I did in Japan was half a year working for a pharmaceutical wholesaler in Japan and thinking about customers and what customers mean in pharma. If you look at distribution and wholesale, that's a really weird animal uh, because uh, in terms of money flow, they are customer. Uh, in some respects, they are partners. 
in other respects, um, we are their customer if they distribute things for us. Yeah. And it already shows you how, how difficult it is to think customer in, in pharma. Mm-hmm. But that's already a sidebar. <laughs> so that was Japan and time at head office of Biopharma in, in Berlin, looking after the global marketing of a small orphan drug. Then I had the chance to head our Chilean organization at Biopharma. Um, then back to a head office role at Beringer Ingelheim, looking after global marketing for Pradaxa, Blockbuster brand. And now I'm looking after marketing here in Spain. So in, in that respect, quite typical, although there's quite a collection of countries we've, we've got there. But it's typical because I, I insist that pharma is probably one of the most international sectors you can work in. Because pharma multinationals, we've got our own structures and our own legal entities in places where other big multinationals from other industries work through distributors. Daimler, BMW, uh, Volkswagen, other big German multinationals, they don't exist with their own entities in Chile. But Bayer, Beringer, Ingelheim, Merck, and in all of the non-German multinationals, they are there with their own entities. It's a super international business. And that's how I actually ended up in pharma because it was just the most international thing I could do after graduating. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And um, yeah, you're obviously incredibly well-traveled, certainly more so than me in terms of moving around. I mean, um, just again, before we sort of get into the role, I mean, uh, what would be your observations around how customers differ, if you like, in terms of their attitude towards pharma around the world. Is it noticeable? And and does the role of a pharma company vary considerably depending on the country that you're in? I see different approaches to uh, interacting with with pharma companies. They could be partly cultural. Here in, in Spain, if we are not in lockdown, we are very strong, very strong face to face culture. And I know we are discussing a lot about the role of the of the sales rep, but actually our customers look forward to seeing to seeing our people to have mm-hmm. that personal touch, and that helped us switch over to Teams, Zoom, like Viva Engage interactions now. So that that you've got on on the one hand, then you've got other cultures that a little bit more transactional, maybe less 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 relationship driven. Then you've got a healthcare systems differences and all of that influences. And that's where pharma affiliate comes in and taking a global strategy and and taking a look which pieces do we need to adjust in order to play successfully in our local environment, which local customer groups are important for us in our country, which are maybe less important compared with others. And how do we get our messages out to them? How can we partner with them? And that's that's why we've got those affiliates all over the world in order to to get the strategy on the ground to to see what does it mean in a healthcare system in Spain or in one of our seventeen regions that actually drive healthcare here. Yeah, no, thank you. Let's sort of platform from that into the kind of almost definition of marketing. I mean, so you're head of marketing. I started my career in marketing. I'm, uh, would you believe, a a qualified marketeer and was convinced that I would spend my life uh, doing marketing type activities, which I guess to a certain extent I have. But 
I'm sure marketing means something very different in pharma to things like life assurance, which is where I started. So could you bring to life for our listeners a little bit about what marketing means in a pharma company and how you interact with the various customers of Boehringer? I think the, the key word is various because if you think about a pharmaceutical product, who is the customer? Well, if the first customer you can think about is the patient because the patient will eventually consume the product, receive a benefit from it. But then you've got uh, a whole lot of other stakeholders, influencers, customer groups that are also involved. You've got insurers, private public insurers. You've got the people who take prescription decisions, doctors, nurses. You've got people who put together which products, uh, lists which products can actually be prescribed in a healthcare system. In most countries of the world, we've got regulated prices. So we've got different levels of of regulators who contribute. I've talked about wholesalers, distribution already, pharmacists, physiotherapists sometimes, and I'm I'm sure now I've forgot two or three customer <laughs> groups at least in my in my uh, long list, and that makes it probably a little bit different. That we have to find a way to interact in the proper way with every single one of those customer groups. And uh, first of all, on a strategic marketing level, we have to understand where does everybody fit in? And the only thing I can imagine to organize that in my mind and with the teams or on a flip chart is to draw the patient journey and take a look. You just have to follow the patient around in their journey with, the, with their disease, with their problem through the healthcare system and see what do we as a pharmaceutical company need to do so that the maximum number of appropriate patients get our product? And f funny enough, and we talk a lot about patient centricity, but patient centricity in pharma doesn't mean that we interact a lot directly with the patient, no. but that we, I see the removing obstacles around the patient that inhibit optimal treatment. Right. And there we have to work with regulators with doctors, with the doctor's bosses, with nurses, um, with societies of doctors and nurses and so on. And that makes it very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And within those different groups of patients, I mean, you, you've, I'm sorry, customers, so you've, you've named lots of different groups. I mean, do you, do you go down to segmentation within those groups as well? And, and you know, segmentation play a big part in, in what you do in terms of trying to, to be focused in terms of how you market to each uh, subsection, if you like. And, and on many different levels. So that after we understand the patient journey, well, we first have to take a decision for this particular product, which where do we need to intervene or influence things along the path of the patient. And that gives you groups of customers that you want to interact with. So you've got some kind of targeting, less segmentation, but targeting. You, you will not work with every single stakeholder group for every product. In the nature of a, a, a product of a certain drug, that you need to work more with uh, pharmacists for this product, maybe more with nurses for that product. You can imagine that 
uh, in a health product for rare disease uh, needs a different approach than an anti-diabetic that will reach a million patients mm-hmm. or, or several million patients within within Europe. So you play with different target groups and you have to interact with different people. So that's a that's a targeting approach. You, as, as always, you have to focus as well on where you can do most good along the, the patient journey. And then, of course, once you decided to interact with a certain custom group, you do need to segment. I think that's absolutely basic to understand attitudes toward the the, the problem and for each customer group to go below the surface, below the waterline and take a look what really drives behavior. And in health, maybe more so than in, in other areas, people sometimes say one thing and feel another thing and do yet something different. And as a marketer, you have to understand all three dimensions in order to understand how to get your message across. Interesting. And I mean, I mentioned that I'm a, a qualified marketer. It was a very long time ago. It's probably lapsed by now, but... The uh, basics are the same. I think. <laughs> well, and that's what I was going to come on to because I think the basics are the same. But one of the observations I would make certainly in other industry sectors is, is that the, the day-to-day job of a marketer is so different from that that I would have known when I was starting out in marketing. You're right. It's still the same thing. You know, what do my customers want? How do I communicate it, etc. But with the advent of digital, with the way that industries are changing, and particularly in your industries, things like patient support programs and and sort of much broader approach to how you interact with the end patient, but also with the the HCPs. Is it the same in pharma? Is is the profession changing quite rapidly or has it changed much over the years in terms of the impact of digital and, and the sort of the way in which you serve your customers? Absolutely. And on different levels, I think, First of all, we talked about the proliferation of customer groups. We used to be very concentrated on doing things with and for doctors, healthcare professionals, prescribers. And we are much more aware uh, of the need to uh, interact with more target groups along, along the way. So that's one thing that makes pharma marketing more strategic. You move away from designing great tactics for one customer group to a more strategic approach, understanding, again, the patient journey in your country, in your healthcare system, taking good decisions on where to focus and then develop tactics for those target groups. And then the second change comes in, and that is that I need from, from my marketers much better analytical capabilities. They need mm-hmm. to be able to analyze a campaign, to follow a campaign, which is digital or mix of digital and face-to-face, but to follow that in real time, adjust things, understand the metrics that we create when we put something on Twitter and want to generate generate some traffic from Twitter ads onto our websites, get them into our digital ecosystem uh, and and maybe follow up with a webinar, etc. I need people who can analyze what's going on and adjust rapidly. And that's different from what maybe my generation started out with when we, my first brand manager, we, we designed a detail aid, a detail aid in pharma that's a few, pa- a few pages of, of paper that you would show the doctor 
while visiting uh, and with some product information on our drop card. Or it was in, in a way much more glamorous because it was more advertising. And it's become a little bit drier maybe because now we need to analyze, we need to take strategic decisions. But that excites me as well, more so than deciding whether the brand color should be orange or green. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and But I think it's, it's also pointing towards this ever agile, ever responsive nature of what you have to do with customer experience generally, let alone in marketing, which is the expectations have shifted to such an extent that when you say something on Twitter or you want to uh, give a bit of feedback, you, your expectation is that the organization will jump very quickly and um, and, and respond to you. And I'm, I'm guessing from what you've just said that that's kind of true as well, because you've got this stream of data coming through. You can see in real time what's going on, and it's no different in pharma from any other industry by the sound of it. Yeah, and we've got this curious mix of B2B and B2C in our style. We are not, not B2C because in most countries in the world, we cannot communicate directly to patients no. in a very, very limited way. Yeah. So by definition, we are business to business, but then our business to business still involves thousands of healthcare professionals. So yeah. um, tactics, metrics, etc., often are more B2C. And because doctors in their daily lives are Google and Apple users and order their, their, their food online these days more than ever, that of course shapes as well their expectations towards how they want to communicate with us. Mm -hmm. And um, right now we are starting with a, with a project to understand much better here in Spain what the, the new generation of doctors want from pharma. How do they want to communicate with us? How do they want to get the information? When? Which channels? Because to say it a little bit, uh, little bit harshly, sometimes when I'm out, or was still possible and, and visit the primary care centers here around the country. Sometimes I felt the doctors were older than the patients. And so that, that gives you a hint that a lot of them will retire. Within the next 10 to 15 years, half of the, the medical doctors in, in Spain will retire and will be replaced by, I don't even know what to call that generation. Is it X, Y? No, X is me, right? Probably why. <laughs> whatever. But but yeah. I do know I do know they'll want to communicate with us differently mm. and mm. we'll do some action learning around that. So you've got all of those changes that impact expectations of consumers and that also impacts expectations of what healthcare practitioners want from us in their communications. Patients I think it it's probably not become easier for, for doctors to uh, interact with patients because they're more informed mm. or they've got mm. the chance to be more informed. Some are, some are not. Uh, I also notice a segment, talking about segmentation, uh, a segment is quite happy to delegate the responsibility to the expert. That's, that's also around. And we have to be careful to not say that, that all patients are now hyper-informed. Um, they uh, want to discuss uh, several treatment options with, with doctors. That's one segment that's surely growing, but there are other segments that are, that are happy with the trustful relationship uh, to doctors. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's 
interesting you've come on to that because I was just going to sort of say, you know, this more informed consumer, not everybody, but let's let's assume that a number of consumers are more informed. And I, funny enough, I had Paul Sims on the show a, a little while back and um, who you know, a wry smile there, you know what Paul is, is about in terms of his quest. But he and I were chatting and, and one of the things we were talking about there was the fact that quite often for certain patient groups, they'll visit Google before they'll visit their doctor. You know, they're literally the first thing they'll be obviously and, and become more informed and then if they have to go through some treatment, they're constantly looking at the information that's available out there, most of which is, I guess, factual and good and some which isn't. So, and then, sorry, I'm going to tr- link a couple of themes here. But so that factor and then the other factor that a lot of guests on this show are in a similar situation to you, which is being a, a kind of B2B2C organization where you're working through intermediaries, which in this case are healthcare professionals. So bringing all of that together, you've got a more informed consumer. You've got this very much remote relationship that you have with your end consumer, the person you're actually doing this for most of the time. And it's kind of changing all the time. I mean, how do you kind of capitalize on an opportunity that that, that might present? I mean, how do you do you deal with that? I guess the, the, the legislation, the regulation that you're under prevents you to a certain extent from, from doing certain things. But how does a pharma company grab the opportunity that presents themselves in the future with this more informed consumer? Yeah. Well, we've got partners. There are patient associations out there. It's it's one of those those big trends that patients, the empowered patient, they they organize themselves, and here we we can interact, and especially when it comes to understanding a disease or topics like well, what does it mean living with a certain condition. There we can partner. There we can partner and. Uh, the great thing about working with patient associations is that they can really describe what it feels like living with a with a particular disease because they do that every day. Yeah, and that gives us very important insights relating uh, ourselves with those patient associations. We really understand what does it feel like having the disease. Um, what are the goals that patients have? What, what do they want? Do they want cure? Do they want quality of life? How? What do they want to achieve with treatment? That's very important for us to, to know that. And there, funny enough, often I see that we can feed back important things and important information to healthcare systems, to the doctors themselves about what it means living with that disease because while we can focus on on a number of diseases people in healthcare systems who are looking after the the drugs budget for a region in spain they deal with 300 500 i don't know how many diseases or groups of diseases while we can focus on on one thing really get deep insights so that is something we can we can do nowadays get better insights as as i've said as Marketers, we need to get below the waterline and understand what really drives behavior, drives attitudes, feelings towards disease. What are the problems that really need solving? Uh-huh. Because sometimes we, we also have the tendency to get too much in love with our own science, with our own clinical trials um, that are clearly the, the foundational element to everything we do. But we have to make sure that we are solving problems that 
that our patients want solved and not uh, not only solving problems that we think mm. the patient should want to have solved. Need some humility there. And empowered patients and the organized patient can give us that. So that work, understanding the patient perspective, super important for me. Another thing that's happening is telemedicine. Uh. And internet, newspapers uh, is full of telemedicine, especially after the past year. Uh, what frustrates me is that people are talking about telemedicine and what's happening is a phone call between uh, a doctor and a patient. Maybe we're lucky a video call with big organizational problems, at least here in, in Spain. Uh, because not always when the doctor calls, the, the, the patient is actually available to have a decent conversation about their COPD or their diabetes. How do they prepare for a phone call? I think there's stuff around where, where as pharma we can also help to make this work better. We are very good at educating. Mm. Uh, we are good at educating about diseases, about solutions. So we know how to do that. And, and there acutely I see a need to skill up both sides, healthcare practitioners and, and patients on how to have a good teleconsultation. Mm. Because classically, when a, a patient walks through the door of a, of a consultation, the diagnosis begins. The doctor perceives how the patient is walking. How yeah. out of breath are they? How do they speak? What do they, what do they look like? How red is the face? How pale is the face? They put them on the scales to weigh them. All of that is missing. We're missing entire parts of the, of the diagnostic process right now. So it needs new skills. How, how do I compensate for that as a doctor? And how, as an informed and empowered patient, do I prepare for that? I weigh myself before I have the teleconsultation. It's logical, but it didn't occur to me until a few weeks ago, a GP told me that it's her biggest problem. They don't, they don't weigh themselves because we don't tell them. And, no. and here we can help with basic guides, with, with education. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. That's really, really brought that to life for me. I mean, what I'd sort of take out of what you were just talking about there is a couple of things. First of all, you use a lot of the same tools that any other organization or any other sector uses in terms of managing the end customer experience or indeed the, the healthcare professional experience, which is think about the journey, think about the emotions, the needs, et cetera, all the kind of disciplines that we've always talked about in marketing as well, which is getting right to the heart of what someone's trying to, to achieve and perhaps what some of the barriers are that they're in the way. So all of those tools feel like they're the same. And then this emerging need for partnership working, it's something that comes up a lot in conversations in pharma a lot, but also in other sectors as well. This this new skill, this new way of working that's needed to have a true partnership with an organization who you can become quite dependent on because they may well be your only conduit into really understanding your customers. And so I, I, I think that's uh, it's a really interesting point to to dwell on. So yeah, thank you for, for bringing that to life. Let's just turn now to a slightly different tack, which is thinking about value. And again, it's a big buzzword within the industry at the moment, value-based healthcare. And well, not at the moment, it's been it talked about for a long time, but it seems to be growing in, in force in terms of um, people thinking about it. But ever since the introduction of the ACA in 2010, I mean, value has been sort of half a buzzword and half a guiding principle in healthcare. 
for life sciences, value and outcomes seem to be becoming more critical than ever, certainly from as a, as a consultant looking into a number of companies. I mean, do you agree with that? And, and why do you think this is happening now? What, what do you think the implications of that are? I think it's very important to sustainably deliver value. But you have to take a step back and take a look at how do you define value. And if you think now, now back again, to the patient journey and to the various stakeholders you've got along the patient journey, what does value mean for whom along along the journey? How does a patient define value? How does a payer define value? How does a, an, uh, a prescriber define value? Value for a patient may be, I feel great because I've lost three or four kilos. I can feel it. I feel more. Freer can move around better. I get into positive spiral and get fitter every day. That could be value for a patient. Value for an HCP could be, I prescribe that product and the patient doesn't come back with a problem. It's ticked off until the next routine checkup. I don't have a, a problem because of some, some complication in managing the drug or because the patient doesn't uh, improve. Value for payer could be, I save in my population, and yeah, now we're not talking anymore about an individual doctor and an individual patient. We're talking about a population. In my population, I save 1.5 million euros in hospitalization by investing 375,000 in drug A. So we, we need to develop, somehow find a way of, of delivering different values to different, uh, different target groups. And then the frustrating thing is that um, you may be able to deliver value, for example, to a healthcare system by investing those 375,000 extra in the drugs budget to save 1.5 million euros in hospitalization, but those two budgets don't talk to each other. And it's frustrating. It's really frustrating. I think that's the big partnerships that I think we want to engage in as pharma. It's very difficult in many healthcare systems to come to those agreements because the system is incredibly siloed and, and very fragmented. And it's not only a European thing when you talk to colleagues in the United States, you've got a, a problem with uh, quite a short-term uh, perspective because patients often change their, their health plans from one year to the next. So they're investing into long-term outcomes is difficult for insurers. So that's really tough to find partners who want to partner with with, with us. Um, I think we're really keen because we're totally convinced that our solutions bring value, not only to individual patients, but also to, to health systems. And more and more, we're developing our clinical studies and entire products in order to to deliver the value and to demonstrate it in, in scientifically robust terms. Yeah, interesting. And, and so, I mean, that, that sort of leads me to another thought really which is around how you set yourself up in order to be able to face off to those kinds of partners and and how an organization like yourselves is organized so um what about the commercial side of pharma organizations i mean does that have to change in order to capitalize on a world where perhaps you might be seeking to not only validate the value that you give through the medicine and through the science but also through the other support that you might give around the edges in terms of patient support programs, for example. I mean, is, is that, does that have impacts on, on the way in which a pharma company is set up? 
Absolutely it does. And uh, to make it more interesting, your commercial approach needs to look different from therapeutic area to therapeutic area from product to product. Not not every product needs to come with a patient support program, but there are products nowadays that definitely should have a patient support program attached to that. And you can imagine that your um, commercial structure behind product A with a patient program and product B without the patient program needs to look different. Mm. And we need to become much more flexible in pharma organizations to move away more and more from the one size fits all to a tailor-made commercial approach for each therapeutic area, if not product. Um, there are similarities between the approaches in different products, but I think uh, key is to understand again the patient journey, understand where do we need to intervene, which target groups do we need to interact with, and then define what does it take. Where we often go wrong as an industry still is we take a look at what we've got. We've got a market access department, got a medical affairs department, we've got a marketing department, and we've got customer-facing teams all over the country, and then we think, Okay, what do we do with them for product A? Instead of taking a step back, looking at the patient journey of a patient with disease A or condition A and take a look, what does that need? And then we design the organization and, the, and our interventions around that. And that's super, that's super important. We, we basically need to detonate our functions and really, and we need to do that. We need to actually completely detonate it at the beginning of defining how we want to commercialize a, a particular product and then build from scratch for that product. And some functions will repeat themselves, but not always. Mm. Not always. We need to put the mix together optimally for, for each product. And that doesn't work with a, with a functional organization. I could now throw out that uh, buzzword agile, but I really think we, we need something like that. We need teams that have the talents on board that we need for that particular product in that particular market. And um, depending on those needs, we might have a little bit less marketing here, a little bit more medical affairs there, but we have to, we have to detonate our functions. We, we are in love with our functions and it will be the end of the pharma industry if we don't wake up. What's going to be the catalyst for that change? I mean, what, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And a lot of people say very similar things to you, but you don't see much of it happening. And, and I, I wonder, what, what, what's it going to take? Is it, is it, <laughs> is it uh, patents dropping off a cliff completely and therefore income stopping that forces that? Or, uh, you know, is it an Armageddon? I mean, you use the word detonate, which is a fantastic way of describing it. But, yeah, what, what will be the catalyst for that change, do you think? After my detonation, you still got the individual parts, and like, uh, <laughs> like with it's it's more like Lego, where you where you take those building blocks and and put something different, colorful together <laughs> each time. What does it take? I think trends are now in our favor. You see this fragmentation of customer groups, stakeholder groups. We need to play with. You see this the need to put this together a little bit differently for, for every product. You see, and I know, Neil, we've been talking about that for the past 10, 15, 20 years, 
as well, but you, you see also more fragmented product portfolios of, of big companies. The company that is totally dominated by one mega blockbuster with a relatively simple go-to-market model will have fewer and fewer of that. If you look at, at our product portfolio in Böhringer Ingelheim, for example, our biggest product historically, Spiriva, isn't that big anymore. If you look at the, the, the biggest contributor relative to the entire product portfolio, it's it's smaller altogether. We are growing and we've grown a lot. We're not as dependent anymore on one product. So fragmentation, also science. We are able to focus on, on smaller conditions, much more targeted tailor-made solutions for for certain diseases for certain uh, genetic profiles of patients that'll drive that i think those two forces healthcare systems and how they're set up on the one hand and then science that allows us to focus on on smaller groups will make it necessary one approach for everything will just not work Makes sense. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for explaining the, the industry forces because I think for, for listeners who aren't from the sector, it's it's going to be fascinating for them to perhaps draw some parallels to their own sector where, again, you see similar things happening. But I think in your case, it's quite stark. So uh, that, that's very interesting. And what about reputation within this and, and master brand, if you like, the overall brand of things? I mean, one of the things that strikes me about the sector is that it scores consistently low on reputation benchmarks against other industries, for example. You often see them strapped, racked up and, and pharma does score low. And, you know, there's a lot of history behind some of those things. But that must be a concern to you as a marketer. And, and if so, you know, how do you turn that around? What, what, what are going to be the things that you can do, the levers you can pull to, to position yourself differently in the eyes of the end consumer, the patient, and, and even to a certain extent, the HCP, who I guess views you quite differently? But It hurts. It hurts our, our reputation. I'm, I'm surrounded by people every day who want to improve health of patients. We talked about functions. But that goes across function, whether somebody works in research and development or our production sites here in, in San Cugat or in marketing or in sales or in finance. They've got a very clear idea about the purpose of what we want to do. We want to keep patients out of hospital. We want to get a better quality of life for patients with diabetes, COPD interstitial lung disease, arrhythmia, etc. So you don't you don't have 50,000 people uh, around the globe in Beringer Ingelheim trying to do evil every day. It's quite the opposite. They, they, my colleagues are very passionate about improving the life of of people. So it hurts. Our reputation really really mm. hurts. So mm. what can we do about that? I think it's um, it's not a one shot or uh, or something that we can do quickly and then it's it's all wonderful. I see a lot of optimism in the industry around vaccines, around COVID treatments. And yes, that's important. I'm incredibly proud that as an industry, we've shown how fast we can be. The power of the science behind the innovative pharma industry. And there we can be really a partner. And deliver things faster than healthcare systems expected us to be. That's fantastic. And in a way, hopefully that will be forgotten in two years. So we have to carry on 
being much more transparent, explaining what we're doing, how science works. It'll be good for society as well to get a better idea about how science works. For us, it's crucial because it's the base of everything. And uh, it'll always be tricky because let's let's face it, we've got a, an implicit contract with society that allows us to earn a profit because people are sick. We earn a profit because we're helping making them better. But the base is we're earning money because, because they're sick and it'll always be with us this problem. So I think we need to explain better that implicit contract with society that we've got. And the deal is that we bring those innovations and a lot of it and very rapidly as we've done as an industry in the past year in order to earn our profits. That's the deal that we've got. And it's it's complicated to explain that. I think talking about this implicit deal, um, being transparent, there's debate about operational transparency. I think that can help us a lot uh, to explain how long does it take to discover, develop a new drug? It's an extremely long-term commitments we make when we start discovering something, developing something. So basically, the, the decisions of 20, 30 years ago are now financing our decisions about products that will start selling 20 years from now. It's a, it's a 40 year, it's an entire career, life, lifespan of a career that top leaders in my industry need to straddle. Not me, I'm, I'm, I'm working in a country, I've got, got other horizons, but our board, they take those 40 year decisions. Mm. We need to explain that better, and operational transparency can help us there. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm blown away by that explanation, particularly a bit about the contract and, and you know, making a profit from me on this. No one's ever quite explained it to me that way, and I, it does explain quite a lot in terms of yeah, the Yeah, and, and we've, the we've, got this, we've got this implicit agreement with society that we're allowed to make profits, and the other side of the deal is that we deliver, as an industry, innovations like um, our innovations in COPD, diabetes, interstitial lung disease, oncology, or uh, the vaccine makers. That's when our side, when the pharma industry delivers on that contract. So I'm deeply convinced the contract works, but we have to explain it better. And that, and that's really, really interesting. Again, I'm just reflecting on something that Paul and I were discussing, and, it, and it's a conversation that I have on a regular basis. You know, we've, we've seen and heard more from the pharma industry globally this year, well, in the last year because of COVID and the progress that's been made and the, the spotlight that has been on the science. And pharma talking confidently because not just because it's got a good news story, but because you know you're you're doing something and and fulfilling that contract in such a visual and graphic way because there's a almost a a human crisis um, if you don't do it. But communication, I guess, is is where I'm at with this, which is the the role of communication in explaining the business model and explaining what you've just talked about. It feels to me that's lacking, and it may be regulation, it may be confidence because. You know, you just don't know pharma company because of the reputation problems of the past wants to put its head above the parapet and talk in that way. I mean, I, I'm just reflecting really my own thoughts, but I don't know if you'd agree there's something there around 
finding the right voice, maybe through partners, maybe through patient groups, etc., and, and articulating things in the right way. The good thing is a ton of things we can learn from the past 12 months and how to communicate that contract using uh, using the, the vaccine as an example. Maybe there's something in there, but I think it's important to stay consistent there and yep. deliver as much operational transparency as we can. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for that. Very interesting. And one of the kind of key things that I would observe about this theme of the rise of the customer in many sectors is the advent of new entrants coming along. We talk about disruptors. We talk about the uberization of customer experience across different sectors. And that sort of leads to customer expectations rising because they see an organization en masse delivering something that kind of plugs into a need and people think, well, this is how it should be going forward. So in your sector, I mean, what do you think about the arrival of, I know they're kind of toying with it, but we know they're coming, tech giants such as Google, Amazon into the healthcare space and and you know, what, what do you think that's going to do to the industry and, and customers' expectations of the industry and indeed HCP's expectations and their roles in all that? How, how do you see that playing out? On the one hand, it's another uh, operational transparency topic that we don't uh, talk about very often, but pharmaceutical distribution is an awesome beast. Borders closed, factories shut down in March 2020, and the pharmaceutical supply chain chucked along almost if, uh, as, as if nothing had happened. Mm. And we didn't have drug shortages because of border closures, etc. So in terms of uh, logistics, for example, if you not take Amazon as a disruptor, it's difficult to copy. It's a challenge uh, because uh, many countries, pharmacies, they get deliveries up to three, four, five times a day by wholesalers. That's it's more often than I see an Amazon ban in in my neighborhood. Yeah. Um. So there there are a whole lot of things that are working incredibly well, but there'll be disruption as well. We talked about disruption in terms of customer expectations clearly, and uh, how we communicate in the information, the transparency that they want from us. Definitely, that's that's already disrupted. Tech companies can be incredibly interesting partners. Mm. Just at the beginning of this year, we signed an agreement with Google about quantum computing in research and development, for example. We're the first pharma company that's partnering with Google on, on quantum AI. There we've got partnerships. We understand molecules and that bit of science really, really, really well. They understand computing really well. So there right. are partnerships that can be incredibly interesting. What keeps me up during night uh, during the night is where non-pharmaceutical interventions could one day deliver an outcome comparable to a drug. We think about anything that generates a benefit through loss of weight or more physical activity or any other kind of behavioral change. I think there we'll see digital therapeutic interventions that can drive an outcome that normally you'd only be able to reach with some kind of pharmaceutical product. Patients who've got diabetes, for example, or smoking, cessation, etc. So there I'll see some real competition coming up very soon actually mm. uh, when you compete with just 
to say it bluntly, just living more healthily, uh, eating better, exercising more, even drug compliance, all of all of these things where you want to change behavior of a patient, this quite obviously can drive improvements on markers, how we measure disease. Uh, in diabetes, often it's a, we call HbA1c, how much sugar is in the blood. If I eat better, if I exercise more, that value will improve. If I take the right drug, that value will improve. So far, it's been incredibly difficult, and uh, we we know that all ourselves, with all of the good ideas we've got about what we want to change in a new year, to stick to that, to change our behavior sustainably. But the combination of behavioral science, we know much more mm. about how we behave, why we behave like that, with electronics and smart algorithms of being able to scale behavioral change programs. I think there we'll be able to drive without drugs improvements in clinical outcomes. And then we might well up in competition with the digital therapeutic. And I think we need to learn how to develop digital therapeutics as a pharmaceutical industry and then how to introduce them into healthcare systems. And that's that's one thing. And another thing that we need to understand very well as pharmaceutical industries is anything that happens around monitoring of patients, about systems that can help doctors intervene early. We'll be able to build behavioral change programs augmented by, by algorithms that in a relatively cheap way can help patients live more healthily and uh, improve their health that normally would have been able to, only a drug would have been able to do that. Yeah, really interesting trend. I mean, and, and I can see, you know, how you can partner to a certain extent, but there'll probably become a time where you're, as you've quite rightly and very eloquently put, you know, you've got a very strong core competence in the in the science of, of molecules and creating proteins and all sorts of uh, amazing stuff that gets done with uh, the technology within pharma now. And then you've got people that understand quantum computing in ways that none of us ever could. And then we've got this other playing field where we could cooperate because there are people who are extremely good with algorithms mm. and with um, digitally augmented behavioral change programs. Yeah. We are very good at commercializing solutions that drive health, health outcomes to hundreds of different healthcare systems around the world. And I, I can see some, some collaboration there as well. I, I see partnerships. But we have to keep our eyes open. Yeah, interesting. Interesting future view of the world, potentially. Thank you for that. And just as a, a kind of a bit of a sidestep um, before we just get into a bit of a, a wrap up generally about customer experience. But I know from the work we did with you, um, you know, you obviously we've talked a lot about human life science today. Uh, but I know that you have a, a very big presence in animal health as well. Um, I mean, how does animal health differ and, and what, how does the job of a marketeer differ? Because obviously you've got a very different end customer. You've got an HCP, in it, you've got the vets and you've got other um, people that, that look after animals. I mean, I know obviously it differs, but I mean, can you give us a sense of, um, you know, the kind of the different way in which you operate in animal health? Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy uh, that we've got an animal health business unit and uh, we've got great colleagues in in that business unit and 
Again, looking back on 2020 in our Zoom and Teams calls, you saw more and more pets popping up. <laughs> yeah. Just before we started recording, I kicked out my, my home office buddy. Um, but but usually I've got a cat here with, with me a, a lot of the day. And you see that with, with the colleagues. So it's something important in families, the pets. In 2020 as well, a concept emerged that we call One Health. And if you, when you think back to how the pandemic emerged, um, there is something in, in, in a crosstalk between animal and human disease that we understand more and more about. And more and more, if we want to control pandemics in the future, we also need to understand animal health. So it's, it's a great place to be in. It's different when I look at from a marketing point of view, commercialization point of view, it's different and not that different. They've got their own kind of proliferation of different target groups as we've got in human health. But basically, we've got two different business models in, in animal health. Come boils down to that. One business model you've got for pets, for my home office buddy, will get... Uh, his vaccinations next week for, for the year. And uh, then there's another business model for, for farm animals. And you can imagine that they're quite different. Mm -hmm. You've got, again, different influencers. There veterinarians specializing in farm animals. Others are specializing in pets. You've got uh, more of a business-to-consumer model in the pet area, more of a business-to-business -business model in the farm animal area and it's it's interesting to observe my colleagues straddling this to um, in the way i said that we need to throw slightly different business models at each therapeutic area or a drug they need to do that basically into in in those two businesses as well and i know i don't know too much about animal health but i know as well that, that commercializing a flea collar is different than commercializing a vaccine that the cat needs every once in a while. Mm. And even more advanced treatments. So we're now moving into treating cancer in animals. We repurposed one of our nebulizers from the human pharma business for horses and animal really? health. <laughs> global leader in, in horses, and um, for example, and global leader in vaccines for pigs as well so it's it's a super interesting it's a super interesting business to be in animal health i'm happy we've got them on our side and arguably in their market they're more successful than we are because during ingelheim animal health is in the top three globally perhaps i better talk to one of your colleagues at some point about the, the rise of the uh, from them. yeah yeah right the rise of the non-human customer might be another series altogether but uh, uh, let's see how we empower that my, my cats are a little bit too empowered sometimes <laughs> not not missing that well certainly as we were starting it was very demanding in terms of uh, being unhappy about the fact that we were recording and you wouldn't let him in so absolutely okay thanks for that Dirk. and just finally i, I always ask my guests this because i just want to sort of bring it back to just the whole perspective and customer experience and this is about you as much as it is about boeing really your perspective and um what do you think being truly customer centric means as, as somebody who does this for a living every day how, how would you define being truly customer centric it starts with something very little, um, and it's respecting channel choice. It's not that complicated, and it delights me when uh, companies get that right. 
I opened a bank account with Open Bank. That's the the non-traditional banking product of uh, Santander here, and it was fantastic. They they it was easy. They respected my channel choice. I just get as much email and as little phone as I want, and nothing's ever a problem. Um, so I think while we need to do all of this really strategic sometimes complicated stuff with a with a patient journey. I understand that really well to take strategic decisions in the day to day, just have to be respectful of little things, um, reduce friction, respect how customers want to interact with you. Only because you think phone is a great channel for you doesn't mean that Dirk as a customer loves phone. I don't. I thought I was on a good way when I asked for some information about a car. British manufacturer, not that many left, not the very expensive ones, so kind of middle of the road one. And I thought we were on a fantastic way when on their website they gave me the alternative to interact by, you want to be called or do you want an email? So I said, yes, finally, somebody understands me. So I ticked email, just send me the stuff. Three days, nothing happened. Fourth day, I get a phone call. Because, because I asked for information about that particular card. It's, of course, a fail. And I know how difficult it is to design processes in a, in a company in order to make all of that possible. But it's just make it frictionless for the customer. Yeah, yeah, great answer. And you've just answered the other two questions I was going to ask you, which is one of them to find a really great example of a, a good experience that kind of lives up to that. You talked about the open banking and um, the sports car. Would you regard that as one of the most terrible experiences you've had or can you think of something a bit more emotive? No, um, it was, 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 was regular bad. And in a way, I didn't really, didn't, you, you also get cynical as a customer. Because yeah, you, 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 you wonder, is that going to work now? Are they going to phone you anyway on their phone? But yeah, no, it was terrible, often you know, there's really terrible situations that can be saved. Huh? Yeah. I think about some of my most terrible uh, situations, like high stakes stuff, the airlines getting yeah. somewhere, getting stranded somewhere, a lot of emotion, a lot of stress. They can be saved by human customer service. It doesn't even have to cost them a, a lot. But often I find that the attitude of the person you, you deal with makes all the difference. Are they understanding? Are they defensive? Are, are they stressed out? I think Richard Branson said, treat your, treat your employees well so, and they'll treat the customers, right? There's probably something in that. And then you can generate a lot of micro situations with customers that are all positive. No, very true. Very true. Um, certainly when I was a marketer, you often looked at your complaints as being one of your potential sources of, uh, of great reputation because um, and uh, in, in the UK, we have a brand, John Lewis, who are very known for, uh, they call it spectacular recovery, where um, you know, if, you, if you treat a complaining customer as, as well as you possibly can to really spectacularly recover, then that's absolutely um, the right way to approach it. Final question, I promise. Uh, what's the one thing that you have learned throughout your career that you could never have learned from a business school? It's being out there, seeing customers. You can learn a lot about systems, about frameworks, and it's important to have a theoretical background to somehow make sense of 
of what's happening and to organize your thoughts and to make a strategy. So you need that theoretical backbone of, of a patient journey. But there's nothing that quite compensates being out there and then see a customer interact with your product. Although we don't, it's unspectacular seeing a patient taking a pill. But hey, there's, there's things to learn in there as well. And we've got nebulized products that get inhaled. Super important to understand that. Mm. customer experience um, to be there when prescribers talk about a disease and what they want to achieve with, uh, with a treatment and to be there because I feel I've missed that. I've been out a lot through Teams and Zoom and we've got a tool called Viva Engage and visited uh, doctors but there's, there's something we perceive as human beings being in the situation that gives you an extra qualitative insight. And um, I realized that very quickly when uh, I started carrying the bag as a medical representative in South Africa. You've got to be there with your customers in order to really understand what's happening. I hope that I'll be able to really go out and be with customers a lot more sometime again this year. But in the meantime, we have to make do virtually like uh, the two of us until you yes. visit me next time in San Kuga. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm very much looking forward to it as well. Dirk, that was brilliant. Thank you so much indeed. I mean, I've really learned a lot about what customers mean in your world and, and how you serve them, how you serve them as a marketeer. And there's obviously, as we know, a huge amount of change taking place in the industry and, and, and lots of very exciting things, you know, combined not just with the science, but just in terms of the way in which the whole industry um, is sort of gradually shifting. So, so thank you very much indeed for sharing your experience so openly and candidly. And well, I, I genuinely look forward to the opportunity to get back to Spain and uh, I'll, I'll buy you a beer for sparing an hour and a bit to, uh, to talk to me today. So thank you. Excellent. Pleasure. Can't wait. Lovely. All right. Cheers, Doug. See you soon. Thanks very much for listening today. If you found that useful, please give us a like on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And if you'd like to know more, you can find us at penpartnership.com or you can follow Pen Partnership on LinkedIn. Until next time, goodbye.